Welcome for another episode of Booker's House of Learning. Second episode today, we're going to be dealing with U.S. imperialism. Now, we first want to look at the reasons why the United States is beginning to go beyond its borders. We first want to start out with this concept known as manifest destiny. This is where Americans felt that they were divinely chosen to go from coast to coast, and this compelled them to expand westward. So by 1890, the frontier is closed. There is an American citizen in every corner of the continental United States, and this is going to encourage Americans to go beyond the shores of North America, beyond the shores of the United States, because we're humans. Now, let's go over the concept of social Darwinism. This is going to be an ideology that manifests itself in the West, and basically Europeans, Americans feel that their race and their culture is superior, and that it is their duty and obligation to go and civilize other parts of the world. So this is what's going to um, you know, send missionaries out all over the globe, and also proclaiming that Western countries are providing more efficient uh, governments, more efficient economic systems. So that's a motivating factor for the United States to go beyond the continental United States. Now, I would be remiss if we didn't bring up the Industrial Revolution. Just like the Europeans, this is a motivating factor for the United States. Now, we have a lot of raw materials in this country, but we also have a lot of businesses and corporations that are developing and evolving over this time. So uh, Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, Mars bars, Hershey's, you know, they all need... Uh, sugar. We want these cash crops like tobacco. We want these natural resources. And so islands in the Caribbean are going to provide that. The nation of Hawaii going to provide that. The other thing that we have is that our factories are highly, highly efficient. And so we're really cranking out so many goods that the domestic market of the United States can't buy all of the goods that we're producing. Where we gotta go? We gotta go overseas. Who has the biggest population with the ability to buy our stuff? China. So the United States, they're going to pursue a sphere of influence in China. Um, we're gonna force trade with Japan and we're going to need stopping points along the way to get to Asian markets. So stay tuned for uh, Guam, the Philippines and Hawaii. All right, the last little thing that I want to talk about for a cause of the United States becoming an imperialist power is the Panic of 1893. Now, remember I said that the economy uh, was a driving force and that our domestic markets couldn't absorb all of the goods that were being produced. And so there was a little slip in the American economy of 1893. And this also encouraged businessmen to encourage politicians like, hey guys, we got to go overseas. All right. The last reason for uh, the United States becoming an imperialist power really kind of goes back to our origin story. So I want to take us back to the year 1823 when President James Monroe makes this declaration to European powers known as the Monroe Doctrine. In 1823, the president informed European powers like, hey, listen, 
we are asserting ourselves as the dominant force in this hemisphere. Europeans, you kind of need to stay out. You need to stay out of our interest, our business, and uh, you don't need to be colonizing over here anymore. We got this from here. So when you look at the United States history of really um, becoming an imperialist power, it was kind of inevitable that we were going to go from coast to coast and then inevitable that we were going to go beyond our borders. Now, let's look at some of the events that deal with the United States and its imperialist policies. First, we do have to look at the Native Americans and the relationship that it had with the colonists and then eventually uh, U.S. citizens. So um, as the United States started going westward, and really even since European settlers got here, there had always kind of been this contention between the settlers and Native Americans. And as the United States is moving westward, they are beginning to... Um, get into conflict more and more with Native Americans because the nation of the Cherokee, the nation of the Navajo are all there and they're quite frankly in the way of the United States government. So the U.S. is going to have to uh, relocate them or assimilate Native Americans. Now, let's look at the Purchase of Alaska in 1867. Secretary Seward, when he made this purchase, other Americans thought that he was ridiculous, like there is no value seen by buying this piece of land that was disconnected, another country's in the middle, and it actually has no really valuable resources. But here was the strategy. If the United States bought it, then that meant that no other country could buy it. And so that really was a defensive move, that we didn't want other European nations to be uh, buying Alaska or taking it over. This is also going to help facilitate our trade later down the road. And surprise, we're going to find gold and oil in Alaska later down the road as well. So this is going to be fantastic because now the United States has natural resources and we can protect our own interest on the continental United States. Now let's look at the nation of Hawaii. The United States is going to annex the nation of Hawaii in 1898. Now this comes down to really economics. The United States is relying on sugarcane, pineapples, and other goods that we are getting from this island. However, we're having to pay tariffs for all of the goods that we're taking from the nation of Hawaii and exporting them into the United States. This is becoming cumbersome, it's becoming expensive, and the United States actually sees the advantage of just taking over this island nation because it's a great stopping point on the way to China, which is really one of our ultimate goals. So, in 1898, um, the United States basically uh, takes it over because there are some farmers that are beginning to have like little rebellions from the local Polynesians and the United States Army threatens like, hey, we're going to have to get involved if this keeps escalating. Queen Lily Kalani understood that the technological advantage that the United States had versus her people was going to be extreme. And so she just rescinded the throne and the nation of Hawaii became part of the United States in 1898. Um, like I said before, the goal is, is that it's going to help out the American economy because we're going to be able to import 
all of those uh, natural resources that we're getting from the island to just bring them back to the United States. You're now one nation, so you don't have to pay import and export taxes. The other thing is Hawaii is going to be a huge advantage of having a stopping point in the middle of the big old Pacific Ocean on their way to um, Japan and China, predominantly China. Now, 1898, this is a really busy year for the United States, and this is going to bring us to the Cuban War for Independence. The Cuban War for Independence is, well, where Cuba is trying to get its independence from Spain. But for the American side, it's going to eventually turn into the Spanish-American War. There are a few causes as to why the United States gets involved in the Cuban War for Independence. The first thing we have to understand is, ideologically, Americans can understand, you know, um, a nation of people wanting to get its independence from a big evil empire. You know, we're Americans. We understand that. We can sympathize with the Cubans wanting to get their independence from Spain. The other thing is, is that, well, there's this growing sentiment of, listen, if we could just kick the Spanish out of this part of the world, like, we could dominate it. And Cuba is 90 miles off the coast of the Florida Keys. It is in a strategic, important location going from the Caribbean into the Gulf of Mexico. And you know that once we get this island, or at least we get a sphere of influence over this island, we can establish a naval base. So stay tuned for that. So yellow journalism is this concept of media within the United States kind of fostering and generating this momentum like, hey, America, it's your obligation to get involved in this war. Eventually what's going to happen is we're going to have a good justifying cause because we can't just hop in the middle of this war because, well, it would make us look aggressive too much. But if we had a justifiable cause, well, then we could get involved in the conflict. So, 1898, the USS Maine is in Havana Harbor in Cuba. It explodes. Now, the United States government says, Spain, you blew up our boat. We're going to have to go to war. And that's how that played out. Now, this war is only going to last for four months. The United States is going to be easily victorious. The Spanish uh, Armada, Spanish Navy, they're so old school, antiquated, they can't keep up with the new Joneses of the United States. So Spain has to retreat. And what this does is it really asserts America as the dominant force within this hemisphere. Now, we're also going to get some, well, prizes out of the Spanish-American War. We're going to get Puerto Rico. We're going to get Guam. We're going to get Philippines. Now, we would fully have taken over Cuba, but they still have the institution of slavery on the island. And the United States in 1898 cannot deal with that issue again because it was so catastrophic to the American democracy prior. However, we're not going to let just Cuba go Free. We're going to establish a sphere of influence over Cuba. Well, why would we want Guam in the Philippines? Well, Spain owned Guam and the Philippines. And so this is going to be strategic locations for us in the Pacific to dun, 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 put naval bases and get closer to China. Far as Puerto Rico goes, that's going to also expand our sphere of influence and power hold within the Caribbean. In regards to Cuba, we are going to grant them their independence through the Platt Amendment. 
And the Platt Amendment in return is going to allow America to have a sphere of influence over the economic policies of Cuba. We're going to get some extra trading rights within Cuba because, let's face it, they have sugarcane and tobacco. And Americans, well, they really want sugarcane and tobacco. Now, the other important feature here is that the United States is going to be able to put a naval base on Guantanamo Bay. This is going to help us strategically because Cuba, like I said before, is a gateway to the Caribbean Sea and the Gulf of Mexico. And so that is really just going to play out for the United States advantage. All right. Now, let's turn our attention over to uh, the United States and China for a little bit. Now, um, China was always seen as a prime market. They had the economy to support goods. Uh, there could be trading that occurred. And so um, after the opium wars, China was basically open for business by force. And so by 1899, we have President McKinley that is really pushing for the open door policy. But Chinese citizens are kind of like, listen, all of you foreigners, Britain, French, American, we're, we're just so tired of you. You've got to go. And this is where we're going to fall into the Boxer Rebellion of 1899 to 1901. And what we're going to see here is um, a, a coalition of nations that were competing over territories in Africa that were competing for political power within Europe and over the globe, they're actually going to unite together to squash down the Boxer Rebellion. What that tells me is that everybody on the world or everybody on the planet really sees China as a valuable market. So they're willing to work together at this point to ensure that everyone has access to trading with China. Eventually, uh, the United States is going to affirm and establish the open door policy, and that is going to uh, make sure that America has trading rights in China. Now, because the United States is becoming a global power, they're going to have to have navigable waterways. President Theodore Roosevelt is going to acquire the Panama Canal in 1903. This is not going to just happen overnight. We're not going to just buy it. Like, we got to get involved in a little geopolitics here. So, Panama at the time is owned by Colombia. Colombians, well, they don't want to give the United States the rights to building the Panama Canal. So Theodore Roosevelt is not okay with that because he understands the importance of getting this canal done. So the United States is going to help arm and train the Panamanians to revolt against the Colombians so the Panamanians can get their independence and then the United States can make a deal with the Panamanians so we can build the Panama Canal. And that's what happens. And so the construction of the Panama Canal happens. It's going to be a technological feat and it's going to be successful. Eventually the canal is going to open up in 1914. What an opportunistic time for this waterway from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean uh, be completed and done because, well, we're at the advent of World War One. All right. Now, we have to discuss um, 
President Theodore Roosevelt during this time. He is a larger-than-life character, and he is really supportive of imperialist policies of the United States. He doesn't create the policies of imperialism. He just continues what the United States has always been doing. So, uh, if you remember earlier on from the show, I talked about the Monroe Doctrine issued in 1823, where that was warning Europeans, hey, stay out of this hemisphere. America has it from now on. Well, President Roosevelt, he just kind of amplifies that with the Roosevelt Corollary. In President Theodore Roosevelt's Corollary, dot, 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 the Roosevelt Corollary, he tells Europeans, listen, you need to stay out of our hemisphere. If you get involved in our interest, the United States has the authority to intervene in any Latin American issue. And so that's where we're going to see the United States get involved in the uh, economics of the Dominican Republic in 1905. There is going to be a border dispute between Nicaragua and Britain in 1911 to 1912. The United States intervenes in that situation, says Britain, you need to go. Nicaragua is going to be Nicaragua. And then we also see the United States getting involved in Haiti in 1915 to kind of stabilize the government and the economy there. Why is the United States getting up in everyone's business during this time period? Well, because if you have an unstable area in the Caribbean or close to the United States, that's going to make the business for the United States really difficult. We have interest in all of these islands because of the natural resources and cash crops that they can provide for the American economy. So if Haiti is in chaos, we're not able to do equitable trade with them or we're not able to utilize the resources on that island. So we need stability throughout the region. Now, we need to look at President Roosevelt again and look at how he's going to exponentially help the United States Navy because we are in the Caribbean. We're trying to gain control over the Gulf of Mexico. We have the Panama Canal. We have islands in the Pacific. We're going to need a Navy that complements and supports and grows the power of our empire. And so the United States uh, Congress is going to authorize President Roosevelt to build the Great White Fleet. This is going to showcase the United States' technological advancements in their Navy. It's going to show that the United States is fully committed to having a strong Navy because at this time, you have to have a strong Navy. At this time, if you're going to build and maintain your empire, you have to have a strong Navy. And so uh, the Great White Fleet is going to go on a tour around the world uh, going to important ports in Japan and San Francisco and Europe to showcase the capabilities of the United States Navy. All right, so we have a strong Navy, we have a strong empire, and looming off in the historical horizon is... All right, so now let's look at the United States involvement in World War I. When the war first breaks out in 1914, the United States is claiming we're isolationists, we're not going to get involved. The reason why is, is because World War I was seen as a European issue, not an American issue. We didn't want to get involved with their conflicts because then they might get involved in our interests, and we did not want that at all. Now, the U.S. isn't fully isolationist. 
because we are selling weapons to Britain, France, and even Germany. We're making loans to the French, to the British. And so the question really comes into the fact of, were we isolationist? From the German perspective, absolutely not. And that's what's going to get us into the, some problems over uh, the Atlantic Ocean. So we have boats, the Lusitania, the Sussex. These are all civilian ships. We have military ships that are carrying weapons to Britain and France. And from Germany's perspective, that's fair game, that if there's weapons on those boats that are going to kill Germans, they feel like they are fully entitled to blow them up. And so that's what happens. And that's not quite the straw that breaks the camel's back for the United States. It's going to come down to the Zimmerman note. The Zimmerman note was where Kaiser Wilhelm II sends a telegram, again, to Mexico. And he suggests, like, hey, you guys go and attack America. And then when we win World War I, we'll get you parts of America back, such as the Southwest. This is known as the Zimmerman note. From the American perspective, Germany totally infringed on the Roosevelt Corollary, and we had no other choice but to get involved in World War I in 1917. I'm going to make the argument that this is really a game changer for the Triple Entente, because what it's going to allow the Entente to do is have fresh new troops, have a global superpowers such as the United States join their side. The other problem for the Entente is that by 1917, Russia pulled out of the war with the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. So all of the German troops that were in Russia could now retreat from Russia and go fight in uh, England and France. And that really put extra pressure on the Entente. And so by America joining the war, this was a formidable force against the Germans. And eventually, on November 11th, at the 11th hour, World War I will be done. At the conclusion of World War I, it's fair enough to say that the United States is an imperialist power. We are a superpower. I want to note, though, that we are not the superpower because Britain is still going to hold that place. But the United States had exponentially expanded its borders into the Caribbean, out into the Pacific, had a sphere of influence in China, and proved to be a formidable ally for countries like Britain and France. World War I. Now, the United States is claiming a policy of isolationism. And to be honest with you, we're not quite isolated. And the reason why is because we are selling weapons to Europeans during World War I. Granted, we are selling weapons mostly to Britain and France, but sometimes we're having some businesses uh, or business dealings with Germany. However, we are predominantly favoring the British and the French as far as weapon supplies and loans. Now, from the German perspective, because the United States is selling weapons to Britain and France, Germany feels justified by blowing up our boats, and they end up blowing up a lot of boats. They blow up the Lusitania, then they blow up the Sussex in 1916, they sign the Sussex Pledge, Germany signs the Sussex Pledge, it says, I promise to not blow up any more boats, but then by 1917, they, well, start blowing up, quote-unquote, enemy ships. Some of these ships do have passengers on them, civilians on them, and it's just good practice to not blow up boats with civilians on them. 
So this is going to increase tension and pressure on the United States. However, we're still not going to feel compelled to go and join the war effort. It's not until Germany sends a telegram to Mexico. This is going to be known as the Zimmerman note or the Zimmerman telegram. Kaiser Wilhelm II reaches out to Mexico and says, hey, if you go and attack the United States, then when we win the war, we're gonna get you territories back from the United States, predominantly in the Southwest. Well, this message is intercepted by Britain, and Britain decides to share that information with the United States. At this point, the United States can no longer stay out of this European affair because the war is now coming to our shores. The United States is going to enter in World War I in 1917, and this is going to be a game changer for the Allied forces. The Allies really need some assistance at this point, the Triple Entente, because in 1917, Russia had decided to uh, leave the war. They signed the Treaty of Brest-Litskov with Germany. And what that did was it increased the pressure on Britain and France, because all of those troops that were in Russia now could head westward and really fully attack the British and the French. When the United States come into the war, this is really going to be advantageous because the soldiers are fresh and new, and America is a formidable force. So by 1918, on November 11th, the war will conclude. By 1918, it is safe to say that the United States is a global power. I want to note that they are not the global power because that place will still go to Britain. However, the United States has full control over the Western Hemisphere, and we proved to be a dependable ally. When you look at the latter half of the 19th century and into the 20th century, the United States definitely is an imperialist power. 